Welcome to the AI Events Podcast, your front row seat to exciting scholarly debates on pressing national issues. With new episodes every week, never miss out on the conversation and stay up to date on topics important to you. To hear more, check out our other channels related to education, domestic policy, and international issues. Good afternoon. Welcome to our session on the defense capabilities of U.S. allies and security partners. My name is Hal Brands. I am a scholar at AEI and a professor at Johns Hopkins University. And it's my pleasure to be able to host uh, this event uh, with the editor and a number of the key contributors to a major new volume on uh, the security capabilities of some of America's most important friends and allies. Uh, I will let uh, Gary Schmidt, who edited the book, say a little bit more about its provenance and its overall purpose when he gives his remarks in a few minutes. But just uh, to, to give some background on this project, it is actually the successor volume uh, to an earlier look at the same subject that was published back uh, in 2013 and was one of the first major studies to look at how the balance of power uh, had changed, not just between the United States uh, and its rivals, but between America's allies and those rivals uh, as well. And it offered a, a really informative and unsparing look at both some of the opportunities and the challenges that the U.S. allies and partners confronted. I think this update of it, uh, which is titled A Hard Look at Hard Power, is especially timely because the security environment has, if anything, deteriorated further since the time that the first volume was published, and because the issue of regional military balances, whether in Eastern Europe or in East Asia, has simply become uh, more important. Uh, and so it, it's an incredibly timely subject to be looking at, particularly as we think about how U.S. defense policy and national security strategy might evolve under the next uh, administration. Uh, and we're very fortunate to have with us a, a wonderful group uh, of panelists uh, today. Uh, so first off, we have Gary Schmidt, uh, who was the editor of this volume and did heroic work in, in pulling it together. Uh, he is a resident scholar in strategic studies and American institutions uh, here at AEI, where he works on national security and, and longer term strategic issues affecting America's security at, at home and abroad. He, he writes on an incredibly broad and diverse range of issues from constitutional law to the defense uh, of Taiwan. Uh, and you can really see that, that breadth on display in the opening essay that he contributed to this volume. Uh, after uh, Gary introduces the volume, we'll have some comments from Ashley Tellis, who is the Tata Chair for Strategic Affairs and is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He's one uh, of the country's leading experts on strategic affairs in the Indo-Pacific region. Uh, and in an earlier life, he spent time at the State Department and at the National Security Council as well, working on some of these issues uh, in government. After Ashley uh, speaks, we will hear from Toshi Yoshihara, who is a former colleague of mine at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, where he is a, a senior fellow. And before that, he spent a number of years at the Naval War College, and he is one of the world's leading experts on Chinese maritime affairs and uh, issues involving uh, Chinese-Japanese relations and security uh, in the Western Pacific uh, more broadly. So we're very fortunate to have him as well. And then last but not least, we will hear from Olivier Schmidt, who is a professor of political science at the Center for War Studies at the University of Southern Denmark, uh, and is also the director of research and studies at the French Institute of Higher National Defense Studies, and is a leading voice on strategic studies and military affairs within that context. And so the way this will work is that each of our panelists 
will speak for a few minutes about some uh, subject of particular interest uh, and importance to the volume. Uh, then I will pose a couple of questions to them, but we'd also like to, to hear questions from those of us who, who are joining, from those of you who are joining us today. So please use the question and answer function uh, to write in with a question and we can integrate those into the discussion uh, as well. So without further ado, I will turn it over to Gary. Thanks, Al. Thanks for the great introduction. And uh, let me thank Ashley and Toshi and Olivier for uh, joining us and Al, thanks for being the moderator. Um, as you mentioned, there was a first volume of, of Hard Power back in 2015. And uh, one reason why that was, I decided to do that volume was because I was somewhat dissatisfied with when we looked at allied and strategic partners, the kinds of material that were available tended to be disparate and, and not, uh, they didn't bring a particular uh, different allies together in one volume. Um, you also found uh, people talking a lot about maybe particular military issues, uh, leaving off strategic and cultural issues and operational issues. And so I thought there was kind of a need to sort of pull things together that would provide essays on key countries that had this sort of top to bottom uh, account of their militaries and their strategic uh, outlooks. Um, as you mentioned, also 2015 was a kind of a, a turning point right after 2014 with the invasion of Ukraine um, and also the Chinese misbehavior in the, in the South China Sea. So the second volume really is an attempt to sort of bring things up to speed. And it has, it has the virtues, I think, if you look at the first volume and look at the second volume, you get a nice comparative uh, account of how uh, things have changed among these key allies. Um, the choice of allies, I think, is a reasonable one. I picked uh, four, I think, rather key European allies the UK, uh, France, Germany, and Poland. Uh, and in Asia, the other key allies that we chose for the volume are Japan, Australia, um, and South Korea. Um, what's a little bit unique is then we also uh, have three other essays, or four other essays actually, three essays on what I call frontline states, uh, Sweden, uh, Taiwan, and India. Um, and again, uh, with an effort to try to sort of understand in a broader perspective, but also partic with particulars about what's going on in those countries. And we also have an essay on NATO itself uh, by a former uh, German general retired who spent a considerable amount of years in NATO um, and in the policy planning area. So the real reason for the volume I think right now is, is pretty simple, which is um, if you looked at the national defense strategy, it makes a point of saying that, that one of the key strategic advantages the United States has is this global network of allies and partners. I think that's true. Um, so, but understanding what they can bring to the table militarily, I think is, and what they can't bring to the table militarily is really important if you're thinking about what strategic plans have to think about when you're talking about sort of the global uh, requirements that the United States military has. So, the other part of this puzzle is the necessity for not only do we have this advantage, but there's a kind of a necessity for these allies and partners, uh, precisely because if you were to look back, for example, I, I think a really telling point is the uh, national or the defense policy guidance of 2012, where the United States essentially, the Pentagon and the Obama administration essentially said, we have a preeminent military, but we no longer have one that's globally preeminent. And so that means we have to start making 
choices about theaters of operation. And it wasn't too long after that, that the so-called rebalanced Asia took place with the thought that we, we, we would be withdrawing uh, substantially from the Middle East and also uh, we wouldn't have to worry about Europe. Um, if you were to look at the budget and you were to look at the size of the US forces, it's not substantially different from that 2012 uh, force that the Pentagon and the Obama administration were looking at. So now we have a national security strategy that talks about dealing with revisionist powers, China, Russia, Iran, uh, still dealing with terrorism, but we still have a military that's sized uh, from back in 2012. So this means that the, the partners and allies that we're working with are even more important today than perhaps they were in, even when the first volume was published in 2015. So I think there's a kind of a uh, growing necessity to completely understand, understand as fully as possible what our allies and partners can bring to the table uh, and what they're willing to bring to the table. So that's what the book's really about. Um, there's some broader points, but we'll probably should wait to use, the, use those for the discussion. Great, thanks Gary. Uh, why don't we go over to Ashley for a discussion of his contribution to the book. Thank you, Hal. Thank you, Gary. It's a great pleasure to be here with all of you today. I've actually learned a lot from your writings over the years. And so I think of myself as much as a student of your work uh, as a collaborator in this effort. Uh, my chapter focused on surveying the strengths of the Indian military. It's, it was actually a great uh, thing to go back to because I haven't looked at these issues closely in many years. And let me start by sort of identifying some key themes that go through the chapter. Uh, the first theme that I is worthy of note is how large uh, the Indian military actually is. Uh, the Indian Army is the second largest army in the world uh, in terms of men under arms. Uh, the Indian Air Force is the fourth largest in the world in terms of number of combat aircraft. And the Indian Navy is the seventh largest in terms of the number of vessels that fly uh, the Indian flag. So you're really talking of a very large uh, military establishment. India represents a huge repository of hard power. It also happens to be a battle-tested military because unlike many other militaries, uh, the Indian armed services have seen combat uh, virtually in some fashion or the other for the last 70 years. Uh, they fought wars uh, with both uh, their two adversaries, uh, Pakistan in the West, uh, China in the North. In fact, there's an ongoing conflict with China uh, along the Himalayan borders as we speak. Uh, they've been involved in uh, virtually nonstop uh, counterinsurgency operations uh, for now some 70 years and so on and so forth. So you're talking of a large military that is also battle tested. But the question that I had at the back of my mind as I was writing the chapter was, can this military operate comfortably and effectively outside of its own native environs? And I was struck by uh, the line that Lord Salisbury had in the glory days of the Raj, where he described India as an English barrack in the Oriental seas from which we can draw any number of troops without paying for them. And it, and it showed because the Indian military was a genuinely expeditionary force during the Raj. Uh, it fought uh, the Raj's battles uh, in diverse parts of the world, both in the First and the Second World War. And to 
keep that as a backdrop and look at the Indian military today, you realize what an arc it has traversed. Because today the Indian military for most part is not an expeditionary force. It's focused very much on the defense of its own frontiers. Uh, and the challenges uh, that it meets on those frontiers are not insignificant. Uh, Pakistan may be a smaller uh, adversary compared to India, but it has professional forces of its own uh, that have given a good account of themselves in most of the wars except 1971. Uh, the Chinese military is actually growing in strength, transforming as we speak and increasingly able to operate in a part of China that it never did historically, which is the, the, Tibetan, uh, the Tibetan plateau. And so India as a military, no matter how formidable it is uh, in absolute terms, uh, faces rivals uh, that keep it preoccupied uh, in ways that prevent it from being able to bring its formidable military power to bear outside the Indian subcontinent. And I don't see that orientation, which is a subcontinental driven orientation, uh, changing very dramatically, at least uh, in, in, the, in the years ahead. And I would, I would uh, flag two uh, issues there that are worthy of note. First, although India has uh, been growing in economic terms quite impressively since 1991, uh, the government of India actually made uh, very conscious efforts to keep military expenditures under control. And so even though the Indian defense budget is rising in absolute terms, as a proportion of GDP, that budget has actually been falling steadily uh, since the beginning of this century. In other words, even though India professes a desire to play a great role on the global stage, it has simply not funded the creation of a military force capable of supporting that ambition. And because India's development challenges are still substantial, more than half the Indian population is still under uh, the World Bank's uh, poverty line, uh, it seems to me that India will find it hard to increase defense budgets to the point where it can actually build a military force capable of expeditionary operations. Uh, and that leaves the United States with important challenges because uh, if we get Indian military support for contingencies, that support will probably be best seen only in the Indian Ocean region uh, rather than beyond the Indian Ocean region. And that's something that I think our planners need to keep in mind, that India's effective reach and its effectiveness in terms of where it can deploy its forces, uh, that effectiveness, effectiveness is seen much closer to home uh, rather than much further afield. So that point about India being short-legged in terms of its capabilities is worth, is worth remembering. And the prospect of it uh, investing in a major transformation in its armed forces is unlikely because the constraints on the Indian defense budget for developmental reasons are going to persist for a long time to come. Uh, the second issue, of course, and I'll come back to this, is India's continuing political hesitations uh, with respect to its strategic partnership. Now, India has certainly crossed one hump which is the anti-Americanism that colored Indian policymaking for many decades uh, seems a quaint artifact of the past. 
But India has not, uh, while it has jettisoned anti-Americanism, it hasn't uh, crossed the bridge of a deep and open embrace of the United States. So this does not mean that India won't cooperate uh, with Washington. It will when its national interests are served, but it will take a lot of persuasion and it will take a lot of hand-wringing uh, before India comes to that point where it is willing to work with the US openly uh, in pursuit of certain joint objectives. Uh, with that as a sort of quick background, let me give you a, a, a sort of very succinct survey of the three principal armed forces, what their strengths and what their limitations are. As I mentioned, the Indian army is very large, but because it faces two formidable adversaries, uh, both Pakistan and China, uh, the 40 odd divisions of the Indian army are essentially entirely spoken for. Uh, many of these divisions are heavy divisions, which means that you know, they cannot be moved very easily outside their normal sectors of operation. And because the Indian political class demands that India not lose a single inch of territory in case of a conflict, the Indian army essentially ends up uh, fighting on a linear battlefield. Uh, packing the front with massive forces in order to prevent losses of territory, because India being a post-colonial state, you know, looks at territory in very important ways uh, for its own self-definition. So if India is to move its, arm, its army in support of US operations elsewhere, something fundamental would have to change in the geopolitical space. That is the Indian environment would have to become much more pacific. Uh, before that army can operate outside. And I remember during the Bush years when we were working hard with India to get India to release a division for operations in Iraq, uh, part of the conversations that we were having with India at that time was that the US had to make the political efforts at controlling Pakistani and Chinese adventurism in order to, be, uh, in order to enable India to release forces uh, for, that, uh, for that duty in Iraq that we were negotiating. The Indian Air Force, uh, again, very impressive in terms of numbers of aircraft, in terms of sophistication. Uh, most of its uh, fighters are essentially fourth generation fighters today, but uh, these are primarily tactical platforms. Uh, they are designed essentially for operations in the airspaces of its immediate adversaries. Uh, the Indian Air Force has not, uh, is nowhere uh, near being an expeditionary air force. And while it has increasing reach, because it has a long range air refueling aircraft, it has strategic transports, it increasingly utilizes space. All these capabilities are designed to maintain a tactical air force uh, in prosecuting India's wars with Pakistan and China. Uh, another way of saying that while India can do some things at a distance, uh, the things it can do at a distance are essentially things that require a permissive military operational environment. The Indian ability to project force uh, against resistance is very modest, including with air power. Finally, you come to the Indian Navy, which is the smallest of the three Indian armed services. And paradoxically, it's the Navy that is actually most equipped uh, to cooperate with the United States at distances uh, from the Indian subcontinent. It's a very professional Navy. It's a Navy that we've worked with very closely uh, now for close to 25 years. And it's a Navy that both by temperament and by capabilities could actually 
provide a wonderful complement uh, to the US Navy, particularly in the Indian Ocean region. And as uh, the years uh, you know, go forward, I think we will increasingly come to rely on the Indian Navy and its professionalism to take the load of some of our, of some of our backs, given our Indo-Pacific strategy, because the challenges from China and the Pacific are going to be so immense uh, that the Indian Ocean will, for all practical purposes, be an economy of force theater. And so to be able to rely on the Indian Navy uh, to do both constabulary duties as well as some high-end military operations in concert with the United States actually offers us the best opportunities with respect to collaboration uh, in the near term uh, where India is concerned. So all things said and done, uh, it's good to have India as an asset. It's good to have a large country which has challenges vis-a-vis uh, -vis our common adversaries, particularly China. It's good to have a country with battle-tested forces and which is increasingly willing to cooperate with the United States. But I think we need to be sober about our expectations about what India brings to the table. Because with the, expect, with the exception of naval forces, uh, my judgment is that the Indian military will find it hard uh, to operate against resistance at great distance from their shores. But given that you know, we are not always, we can't always create the world as we would like it to be, uh, this still provides us, in my view, enough, enough of space uh, to build a deeper relationship with India and to sort of help integrate India into managing uh, the wider Indo-Pacific, where the challenges are only going to get more brutal, not less. So thank you. Great. Thank you, Ashley. Uh, why don't we go over to Toshi Yoshihara. Thank you, Hal, for the kind introduction. Uh, also wanted to thank Gary for the opportunity to contribute uh, twice to this volume. I was uh, the chapter author on Japan for the first edition, and I think uh, ha having had the opportunity to do it twice really gave me an opportunity to look at the changes that have taken place, even over a, a relatively short time period of uh, five years. So uh, let me get right to the chapter. Um, I start with the fact that Japan faces a very stressful security environment. Uh, it not only faces challenges from North Korea, given its nuclear modernization and its missile threat, it increasingly faces an increasingly active Russia in the Far East, including the militarization of the, what the Japanese call the Northern Territories or the Kuril Islands. But I argue uh, in the chapter that the key driver is China. And it's not just the, the speed and scale of China's military modernization, which is clearly tipping the scale in quantitative and qualitative terms, but it's also that China is pursuing a paramilitary strategy, that China's paramilitary power and non-instruments of power uh, is uh, posing a, all sorts of challenges around Japan's periphery. I also uh, note that the role reversal in defense spending is nothing short of breathtaking. Uh, Japan spent about twice as much in defense uh, compared to China in 1990. By 2018, China spent about five times more in defense compared to Japan. This has translated into a dramatic tilt in the military balance in China's favor. In, in practice, what this means is that Japan must cope with China's peacetime coercion, with China's Coast Guard and maritime militia, as well as regular air and naval sorties, passing through the first island chain, all of these things that Japan must respond to, which means that it, it's imposing an attritional cost on Japanese forces during peacetime. And all of this is taking place even as China's military capacity to impose its will on Japan 
has substantially increased. And so with that as the backdrop, uh, let me highlight some, uh, some key highlights of the chapter. Uh, so the first section is on the 2018 National Defense Program Guidelines. So it's a defense policy document that provides a sense of Japan's defense priorities and its uh, major military modernization programs. Uh, and I think just to showcase how, how fast things are changing for Japan, there is now already a new NDPG that's under discussion within the Japanese government. But let me, let me just talk about a few key components of the 2018 uh, NDPG. Uh, this version uh, significantly calls for the, the establishment of a multi-domain defense force. And you can tell from the language that this parallels many of the efforts that are underway here in the United States, where many of the military services are talking about uh, multi-domain operations. While lacking in specific detail, the NDPG calls for fusing combat power across all warfighting domains to include space, cyberspace, and across the electromagnetic spectrum. The goal is to ensure uh, that the whole, the self-defense force, is greater than the sum of its parts, the various services, which of course places a huge premium on jointness and collaboration between and among the services. I also wanted to highlight a really interesting aspect of the document. The guidelines hint at the possibility that China might be able to seize command of the seas and of the air over parts of the East China Sea. It raises the prospect that Japan might have to cede command at least temporarily, and then seek to retake command of the global commons. It also suggests that Japanese defenders would have to then fall back somewhere before surging forward. And so I think even that few sentences that hint at this possible scenario highlights um, just how much more unforgiving the operational environment has become for Japan. Let me now highlight some of the key items in terms of Japan's modernization program. There are major efforts underway across all of the military services. The Maritime Self-Defense Force continues to introduce uh, very modern and very capable platforms for its undersea and surface fleets. But perhaps the piece of news that's caught the most attention is the prospective conversion of the Izumo-class helicopter carrier to embark F-35B uh, fighter aircraft. Uh, and part of the rationale is to have basically a mobile landing strip to supplement the Pacific facing air bases on the main Japanese islands. To me, I think a lot of questions remain about the development and the actual operational utility of fixed wing naval aviation going forward. The ground self-defense force itself is actually engaged in uh, major downsizing of its tanks and artillery uh, for static defenses against large scale uh, homeland invasion. And as it's downscaling those more heavy equipment, it is reorienting itself toward more mobile defenses, particularly mobile defenses of the Southwest Islands or the Ryukyu Islands. It has in recent years established a Marine Brigade. It has also opened up new bases and garrisons on the Ryukyu Islands. It is also interested in developing hypervelocity gliding projectiles for what they call island to island defense, something that I'm happy to discuss during the Q&A. The Air Self-Defense Force is also engaged in a major recapitalization of its air fleet. It is now planning to uh, purchase F-35As, and it will also, as I mentioned, introduce F-35Bs for carrier operations. It is also planning to, to, to uh, build and develop a new generation fighter to replace its aging F-2 fighter. 
and it is also interested in acquiring a range of over-the-horizon, long-range precision strike munitions to give the air service uh, greater reach and uh, greater lethality. But I think given all of these movements, uh, I still have some lingering questions that I asked in the first edition that I continue to ask in the second edition. Uh, these questions have not gone away, and I think you know, Japan will be faced with these sort of structural problems uh, in the years to come. The first, as we all know, Japan suffers from some serious uh, fiscal constraints since the post-bubble era. Um, although Japan has engaged in steady increases in the defense budget in absolute terms, uh, it raises some questions as to whether it's enough to close the resourcing gap, particularly vis-a-vis -vis China. The second is Japan's demographic constraint. This is again, a very well-known problem, which is that Japan is not only graying, but its fertility rate is also declining. And that has meant in practice, a persistent inability of the self-defense force to fill existing billets, which raises questions as to whether Japan can sustain a, uh, a buildup or an expansion, even if it were able to choose, uh, choose to do so. There's also another issue that has plagued the self-defense force, and that's the question of jointness. Because of course, if Japan were to pursue seriously multi-domain operations, it will require unprecedented inter-service collaboration. And, and as a practical matter, uh, it remains to be seen how the air and maritime service will cooperate in order to fulfill the, these future carrier operations. Uh, Japan also is interested in long-range precision strikes, and this raises some really interesting operational questions that I think need to be further developed. With this greater range, does this suggest that the SDF has the luxury of falling back, essentially falling back to use the Pacific Ocean as strategic depth, or uh, can the uh, services begin to think about extending defenses forward into the global commons and perhaps even beyond? Um, so I think overall, while there's a lot of promise of Japan developing new operational concepts for these capabilities, I think there still is an urgent need for the operational design to align with Japan's theory of victory in a high-end conflict uh, with China. So as I've said, a lot has happened over the 10 years, a lot has happened over the past five years, and I expect more change to come uh, in the future. Thank you. Thank you, Toshi. Uh, and Olivier, over to you. Thank you so much. And uh, I'll also extend my thanks to Gary for editing the volume and for inviting me tonight. As you can hear from my accent, I'm speaking from Paris and uh, it's, uh, it's great to be, uh, to be here even though it's online. First, I would like to begin by uh, saying that I speak in my personal capacity only and nothing I say represents the view of the French government. Um, so, to talk about French defense policy first, I will uh, go through a few core principles uh, in French defense that are still valid. The first one is that historically France wants to be self-reliant in, or in order to defend its sovereignty. And in terms of um, defense policies, uh, it has a strong impact in terms of maintaining an autonomous nuclear deterrent. It's a really important uh, factor in French defense policy, maintaining their nu uh, nuclear deterrent. The second aspect is the ability to act on its own if needed, which means that the French armed forces should be able to conduct military interventions if asked so by the president. So this notion of being self-reliant uh, when, you know, uh, sorry, uh, excuse my French, shit hit the fan, is really important for the, uh, for the French defense uh, people. 
The second notion is that the French armed forces and governments have wanted to maintain full spectrum capabilities. So even though they are, uh, the French armed forces have grown smaller over, over time, the goal is really to maintain full spectrum capabilities for military reasons, but also for industrial reasons. There is a strong industrial defense base in France that needs to be maintained. Therefore, there is this ambition to maintain full spectrum capabilities. The third aspect, and it's a long-term goal of French defense policy, is step-by-step step to establish what we would call a strategic Europe. Basically, for historical reasons, France is not certain about the US security guarantee. French policymakers appreciate it, but they do not take it for granted. And there is also this notion that sometimes European interests might not be the same as US interests. So, and, and I emphasize that sometimes this is misconstrued in the US as being, you know, trying to push the US out of NATO, trying to dismantle NATO or something like that. Um, it's mostly saying that we are close allies, but even though we are allies, we are not always aligned in terms of interests. And sometimes there are core interests that need to be defended by Europeans because the US might just not be interested. So this is a third long-term goal for um, French defense policy. This being said, uh, I'm going to move on to the assessment of the strategic environment that is now being shared between the French defense apparatus. So basically, France had a defense review in 2017, which kind of laid out the um, main threats and long-term trends in the international system. It's not mind-blowing in the sense that there is nothing substantially original, because I think the assessment is widely shared among allies, but it's still worth uh, repeating. The first one uh, is that there is an observation of a diffusion of military capabilities across states and um, state adversaries, but also non-state adversaries. Basically, they are becoming more and more powerful, and French forces observe that, especially in the Sahel. The second source of worry is the unraveling of arms control agreements in Europe, conventional uh, arms control agreements in Europe, but also nuclear arms control agreements. There is also a worry about the use of chemical weapons on the battlefield as well observed in Syria. The, last, the, the third aspect, of course, is the emergence of new domains, uh, meaning space and cyber, which have become weaponized. And there is a gradual um, worry about uh, space-based assets able to target uh, French forces, at least restraining the um, autonomous capability of the French forces. And the last aspect is that, at least right now, the threat assessment for French policymakers is that jihadism and violent Islamist radicalism is the main threat to French interests at the, at the moment. It is clearly established as jihadism being the main security threat. So third point, how does uh, France uh, reorganize its armed forces in order to cope with, this, with those challenges? The first thing to realize is that the French armed forces have gone through a constant period of reorganization since the end of the Cold War. There have been cuts after cuts. Uh, there have been a structural change, which has been that we moved from um, um, 
a conscription based armed forces to a professional armed forces in the mid 90s, which had structural uh, impact on the overall uh, on, on the overall model. And basically, it's only since the past two, three years that the French policymakers and uh, military officers are stabilizing the military model. And it's only since the past two, three years that budgets have been on the rise. And just last week, the um, uh, programming law for the armed forces was adopted and the budget is still on the rise as scheduled, even though there was the uh, COVID-19 crisis. So there is um, a momentum of stabilizing and recapitalizing the French armed forces uh, at the moment. So how is that uh, declined by service? Um, I think the core aspect is that all the services are modernizing at the moment. The army is adopting what they called uh, Scorpio, which is basically a network centric system, uh, allowing them to connect the different assets in order to uh, conduct distributed warfare. Uh, this uh, model is developed in strong partnership and cooperation with Belgium. And it's quite impressive because we see a gradual integration of French and Belgian forces because both are, are adopted this technological model and it has um, uh, led to increased cooperation. Uh, the French army is right now um, organized around two divisions of 25,000 uh, soldiers each. And there is a sense of, you know, after 15 years of counterinsurgency, you know, high intensity warfare is back. So that's what everyone is talking about at the moment, how to prepare the French army for high intensity warfare. The Navy is also modernizing. The uh, most visible elements of modernization at the moment is replacing the attack submarines. But we, uh, uh, we also started developing the plan for new aircraft carrier, which will um, replace the Charles de Gaulle by 2030-ish, uh, some, uh, something like that. Um, the Navy is uh, what we call a blue Navy. So it has global ambitions. It is supposed to, uh, because Fr uh, France has overseas territories, it has worldwide uh, interest uh, in uh, securing the sea lines of communications. So the Navy is, um, calibrated in order to be uh, a Blue Navy. And the Air Force is uh, developing its new uh, future combat air system in partnership with Germany and Spain, which will, a bit like in the US and the UK, be a system of system, trying to integrate a number of assets in, um, uh, in order to conduct, once again, uh, high-intensity uh, military operations. Um, after talking about modernization, I would like to talk a bit about the contradiction and the tensions in uh, French defense policy. Uh, the first one is a tension between full spectrum capabilities and nuclear capabilities, because both of them are expensive and it has led the French armed forces to be full spectrum, but also what I will call kind of bonsai armed forces. We have all kinds of capabilities, but very little uh, individually, each of them uh, in small numbers. So um, having this broad ambitions uh, creates this tension between full spectrum capabilities and nuclear capabilities. 
the second tension is being is between this ambition of being autonomous, but also the need to operate with allies, um, especially U.S. Um, in case of uh, high intensity warfare. But we appreciate the uh, U.S. help in the Sahel, but also European allies because they are seen sometimes as constraining uh, strategic autonomy, which basically leads to the accusation of you know French arrogance of. You don't, uh, you know, our allies are annoying. They don't always do what we want them to do, which I think is also a U.S. problem, uh, I, I suppose. Um, but there is this tension between the ambition of being autonomous and the need to work with uh, with allies. Um, there is a third tension in terms of strategic outlook because, as I mentioned, for France, the main uh, threat right now is terrorism and jihadism, which is quite different from a lot of our core allies, including the US, which has moved on from terrorism as being the, as the main threat. Um, and a lot of our NATO allies are, of course, focused on Russia, which for us uh, is a threat that needs to be deterred but can be managed, which is not the same threat assessment as a number of uh, our allies and partners are making. So there is a tension between our own threat assessments and the threat assessment of our core allies. Uh, another tension is a tension between mass and high technology. As you all know, high technology um, is expensive. And uh, I mentioned that France wants to maintain access to those high technologies, but high intensity warfare requires a degree of mass uh, on the battlefield because you know, there will be losses. And um, all the services at the moment are talking about um, developing mass and making sure that we have mass on the battlefield. None of them has squared the circle of paying for the uh, shining gears and having a lot of them. Uh, I haven't seen any convincing plan uh, at the moment. So um, in order uh, to conclude and maybe to launch the, the discussion uh, a bit, in terms of ambitions, the, uh, the French armed forces are definitely preparing for high intensity warfare, but they see themselves, if this happens, they see that as happening as part of a broader coalition. Basically, we are going to fight high intensity warfare with our uh, core allies, which are basically NATO members. Um, there is a capability to uh, deploy at least one brigade for self-sustained operations. So um, quick uh, and uh, hopefully effective operations like the one we conducted in 2013 uh, in Mali. But the problem is that uh, in the long run, there is no capability to sustain the, those operations in the long run. Therefore, the need to have allies and partners to help in sustaining the, uh, the effort. Um, at the moment, the French armed forces are probably the most capable in uh, Europe in terms of range and in terms of uh, combat experience. It is quite important for uh, French policymakers. I mean, there is no debate among the French political class in terms of the fact that you know a strong military is uh, an important asset when it comes to foreign policy. So there is support over time for maintaining an ambitious um, the defense policy. And uh, I think, yeah, uh, as I mentioned, uh, right now the French armed forces are modernizing and recapitalizing, and hopefully the trend will be sustained in order to further develop the French capability. Great, thank you, Olivia. Thanks for listening to the AEI Events Podcast. You can find new episodes each week on your favorite podcast apps. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. 
We'll see you next week.